Welcome to the History of Eye Care, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the evolution of modern eye care. We'll hear the stories of today's thought leaders, innovators, and legends. By exploring the past, we can better shape the future. From anterior segment and refractive surgery to retina, plastics, and glaucoma, no part of eye care's rich history will be left in the dark. Here's your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, an eye surgeon and curious historian who is ready to uncover the landmark moments and untold stories that have revolutionized eye care. Let's dive in. Welcome to the History of Eye Care, a podcast series that's dedicated to exploring our past so that we can better shape the future. Today, I am delighted to introduce our first guest, Dr. Vance Thompson. An esteemed figure in the field of eye care, Dr. Thompson is a global pioneer in laser vision correction and advanced cataract surgery. As a renowned specialist in refractive surgery, cataract surgery, and laser vision correction, he is the founder of Vance Thompson Vision has dedicated his career to excellence in both eye care and the patient experience. Dr. Thompson has been at the forefront of ophthalmic innovations and his contributions to refractive surgery and refractive cataract surgery have resulted in a transformative impact on the field of eye care. He served as the principal investigator in over 100 clinical trials and his commitment to research and education is truly inspiring. Beyond his clinical contributions, Dr. Thompson is well known for his teaching and his leadership. He has trained numerous other physicians and surgeons from all corners of the globe, freely sharing his wealth of knowledge and contributing to the evolution of eye care. As a respected leader in our field, Dr. Thompson's experiences, insights, and personal journey will indeed offer a unique perspective on the modern history of eye care. I'm extremely honored to have him as a guest here today. Welcome, Vance. Thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to just start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Thank you, Morgan, for having me. It really means a lot to me. I value your friendship and, and what you do for our profession. And as far as me, I grew up in South Dakota. My father was a small town family physician. My mother was a homemaker who was also very talented in the arts. She actually danced on national TV in Hollywood. And when she met my father in a bar, that was over. And she married him and raised us kids and and was just someone who taught us a lot about the arts and how to care for people. And, you know, I went to medical school in South Dakota and thought I was going to be a small town family physician. Spent time with an ophthalmologist on a rotation. And it was the first time that I Uh, I mean, I literally heard the angels sing. I was inspired and just actually couldn't imagine not being an ophthalmologist at that point. And I'll never forget when I finished my training, I was already becoming interested in the front of the eye, the cornea and the lens. Applied for a fellowship with Dan Dury in refractive and John Hunkler in, in cataract in Kansas City, got that fellowship and it literally changed my career and really set the tone for a research career, a fascination with refractive surgery. And then after that, my wife and I, Jana, moved back to South Dakota and started a practice here in 91, have three children, two great daughter-in-laws, and so technically five children. (laughs) three grandchildren and absolutely love living here and love ophthalmology and I'm excited to talk. Yeah, no, that's that's great. And I'm so excited to have you here, Vance. I mean, you've been a mentor to me personally as well, just to be able to, to speak with you about your journey and all your contributions to the field. Looking back, I mean, the fact that you're, so your mother was an artist. Do you feel like that that's been really important to you in terms of how you deal with patients and just how you apply the art of surgery? For sure. And it's also been something that's influenced my personal life. When I go teach somewhere in the world, I feel like one of the things I should do first is taste their coffee, experience their arts, and then experience their food and wine. And then along with experiencing them, I feel like I know those people better. And so the art of life is so, so critical. And, and I do feel like it's influenced my communication abilities, my sensitivity and my awareness, my surroundings. And as you know, in surgery, being aware 
and being fascinated with the beauty of the eye that we get to see in our whole visual space. It's like a whole nother world, as you know. I can't imagine ever fatiguing of it. So the arts uh, have been so important to me. I've actually had two presidential appointments to the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., where I've been able to you know, influence the arts on a national and international scale also. And so they, they've been very important to me. And I'm, I'm a musician. I drum. I play a little piano. I am not a great drawer, and I'm a horrible dancer, but I love to dance. And so the arts do play <laughs> into my life significantly. That's awesome. So when you think back, in terms of how you got into ophthalmology, I know that you kind of gave a little bit of your history in terms of medical school. Was there a certain moment? Was there an aha moment? And it's okay if there wasn't, but was there a certain moment where you were just like, wow, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life? Well, the first one happened here in South Dakota in the little town of Yankton, where I was just on a medical school rotation. You know how you spent time in different specialties, and I spent time with an ophthalmologist. And when I saw him make that incision in the eye and do the delicate work related to cataract surgery, I was literally blown away. Now, he actually broke capsule and had to do a vitrectomy. I thought that was super interesting. And I'll never forget just really hearing the angels saying that this is what I wanted to do. It had what I loved about family practice that I thought I was going to do, like my dad and my grandpa, actually, another family doctor in South Dakota. It had those patient relationships in, in clinic and patient education but the microsurgery and working on the visual system and the high compliance that I noticed that patients would, would basically do in general what you told them to do, whereas that didn't always happen in family medicine. And I'll never forget the second surgeon I saw operate here in Sioux Falls, same feeling during his cataract surgery. He broke capsule too, did a vitrectomy. And the reason I tell you that is the third cataract surgery that I saw, they didn't break capsule. And I asked them if they had forgot a step. <laughs> and, and, and they were like, what do you mean? And, and then I told them, they, they chuckled. And, and the, the beginning was just so fascinating to me that I wanted to do everything possible to learn about how to be a great eye surgeon, but to also be a great caring doctor because I wanted to, to be really good at patient education. And to this day, it's still a really big joy of what I do, the relieving of anxiety that everything's going to be okay, the light bulb going on about the options and doing that magical communication with the patient where I want them to know what I know and I want to know what they want so together, they can make a decision that's kind of like what they would, would do in their situation if they had my knowledge. And that's my goal in patient education. And to this day, even though I absolutely love doing surgery, the most fascinating thing I do is demystify the process for the patient, relieve their anxiety, and then develop a plan together. That's awesome. And, and in thinking about that, in thinking about relieving anxiety for the patient, that's got to be a little different nowadays than it was watching those surgeons back then, right? I mean, the process of cataract surgery, I mean, I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? What it was like when you were in medical school, I mean, what was the process for cataract surgery? Well, back then it was large incision, extracapsular cataract surgery, a lot of sutures and the patient expectations that this was going to take a lot of time. They were past the laying in bed for a long time sandbag thing, but they still had this expectation that it was going to be slow and there was going to be a big need for glasses. And, and so the expectations were just a lot lower. And, you know, in residency, we learned small incision, but even then the implant choices were all monofocals. We we really didn't dream of full visual range restoration and not needing glasses and dedicating a career to refractive surgery. It, it just, the evolution that I've seen over the past three decades in the implant world and everything that has followed it has been just absolutely stunning. So in thinking about that, do you think 
do you think it's the implants that have been the biggest change or the biggest advancement in your career? Or do you think it's been the process, phaco emulsification, cataract surgery? In talking about the cataract world, which one of those two things do you think or do you find is the biggest change in your career? Or do you feel like they're just, it's really a tandem process? Well, it may surprise you what I think has been the biggest influencer of my career, and that'd be the eczema laser. This idea of even having a multifocal implant, for instance, the, 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 the handling of residual refractive error, we both know how much patients need and want to be as close to Plano as possible. Kind of like even with a monofocal implant where a patient doesn't mind wearing glasses, we're doing all our calculations to get them to Plano, but you know we don't hit that very often. So we don't leave them there. We do our best refraction, get them that pair of glasses, and then they're on with life. Well, it's the same thing with implant surgery. Just having a fancy implant isn't enough. We have to hit the refractive endpoint. If it's not going to be glasses, it needs to be a refractive adjustment. And corneal adjustments with the eczema laser, you know, going from PRK to LASIK, has been the absolute game changer, not only in those people with a clear optical system that, you know, are going to minimize optical devices, but those who are choosing a fancy endplant, we have to hit that endpoint. And that's where the eczema laser to take the football in for the touchdown and make a lot of people happy has led to all this research and development from the companies and implants and diagnostics and intraoperative devices that help us. And so I think the eczema laser led the charge. It's one of the reasons I'm fascinated with the light adjustable lens. This idea of cornea adjustability and you know implant adjustability, those are the reasons that have allowed a whole bunch of other technologies to come along and now have a world platform such as trifocality is such a big deal now because we know how to use it, but we also know how to finish. Yeah, no, that, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that it's amazing what the eczema laser has unlocked for us. And, and in thinking about the eczema laser, for instance, when we go back from my history and being at Ralph Berkeley's old practice, I know a fair amount of our history of, of the eczema laser, which one day I'm happy to share. But Today, I want to know about your history with the eczema laser because I know it's extensive. It goes way back. So can you talk a little bit about from your fellowship onward, how you started getting into refractive surgery, and then just your journey and just kind of the evolution of refractive surgery? I know it's a big ask. <laughs> well, thank you, because it's really, from my personal perspective, super exciting and, and been one of my career drivers. And that is the first week of my fellowship Dan Dury. So this is July of 1990. I had been to a breakfast at the New Orleans Academy of Ophthalmology where Marguerite McDonald had presented the blind eye work she had done on a PRK patient who magically saw after that. But she had done the world's first PRK with the Visex laser. I joined Dan Dury and John Hunkler and they had the Summit Technology Laser that eventually was acquired by, by Alcon, actually. That study, they were doing their own version of the legally blind, you know, had to be worse than 2200 best corrected vision study. I still thought it was amazing that the FDA astutely said that, okay, even though this laser that has been changing the shape of a rabbit's cornea with accuracy, and it could help us treat refractive error, before we're going to study it on eyes that can see, let's study it on eyes that can't see. And so being a part of that legally blind eye trial where Dan hands me this Sony Handycam back then and says, I'm supposed to be watching Mickey Gordon do this PRK procedure in San Diego. And Mickey was working closely with, on, on Navy people and doing a, a good job in this study. And, and I went out there and it started a, a beautiful relationship with another great refractive surgeon, videoed those first PRKs came back, we watched them, Dan delivered those first PRKs, and that started my research journey. I was a sub-investigator, I was filling out a ton of forms, helping with the exams, and that first night of our first 10 PRKs, we didn't use bandage lenses. We were told that these patients didn't have pain, and so this was very early. 
And we're like, how can this be? We're removing the epithelium. Are we like stunning the corneal nerves? And I'll never forget, it was the first night I'd ever eaten at an Applebee's and my wife and I are out for dinner and we had done 10 patients and I got 10 different phone calls. I went in 10 different times to put on 10 bandage lenses. So we called Teo Seiler the next day and said, Teo, I thought you said these patients did okay. And tell us your, how you handle them. And he said, well, after the PRK, I send them down to the bar for two steins of beer so they sleep the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, one thing led to another, and we started using bandage lenses and actually was also in the clinical trial that got bandage lenses as, as, as a part of the labeled PRK procedure. But it started a, a research journey when I got back here to South Dakota that continued on in the PRK trials. You had to have you know, learned ALK to be in, I remember to be in the LASIK trials and you'd be amazed. But when it was time for me to learn that, I came down and and learned from Steve Slade, who was with Ralph Berkeley then in your office and learned ALK in the early 90s. And you had to have an eczema laser to be in the LASIK study and you had to have done a certain amount of flaps. And so by default, here I find myself in the first LASIK studies in our country and that led eventually to George Waring III, who was involved in Fakic IOLs, had told a company about my work in PRK and LASIK. And that company asked me to get involved in Fakic IOL research. I originally said no. I mean, in the mid-90s, I said, there's, there's no way we're going to be putting implants in Fakic eyes. And obviously, I was 100% wrong. I receive a call from George Waring III. He was in Saudi Arabia studying fake IOLs because we were a little behind in our research here. And he said, Vance, I was the one who gave your name because you had done you know, such a nice job in PRK and LASIK. And they said, you won't even consider it. And I said, he said, would you at least look at the lens? At that time, this was the, the artisan, which became the Verisice in our country. And so I said, okay, okay, I'll look at it. And so I hopped on a plane with Dick Lindstrom and we drove to Amsterdam and we ate our way across the Netherlands to the little town of Groningen where the company Optech was. And the wonderful surgeon, Professor Jan Vorst, who was the inventor of the artisan. And we watched some of our first ones, did wet labs, and we decided to come back and both be investigators. And I could go on and on with my research journey, but those three technologies in the 90s, PRK, then LASIK, then Fakic IOLs, were what set the stage for a conversation that I had with Andy Corley in the late 90s, sitting in his suite at an academy meeting to discuss what was supposedly going to be the world's first accommodating lens, the crystal lens, and what I consider being uh, an investigator. And my chin hit my chest with disappointment. I told Andy, I said, Andy, I have literally thought of refractive surgery as the cornea and now fake IOLs. I've literally drifted away from lens-based surgery. And I'm not your guy. You know, I know what it takes to run a quality FDA monitored center. And I need to be doing the best capsulotomies and the best lens replacement and capsule polishing and all these types of things. He appreciated my honesty. And to this day, we have an amazing friendship, but it, he gave me a peek into the future. And that peak was that refractive surgery was moving to the lens. I chose at that point in time, because a lot of my fellow refractive surgeons had given up lens-based surgery. I chose at that point in time to dive into the lens and dedicate the rest of my career, at least a large component of it, to presbyopia correcting lenses. And now every major trifocal that's come into our country, I've had the honor of doing the clinical trial and more. And so now 105 IDEs down the road, I've been heavily involved in refractive surgery device trials and to this day very much enjoy it. And now I have partners that are just amazing that do it with me 
And that's been so very helpful too. Absolutely. Obviously, a just incredible history of research that you've done, Vance. Can you timestamp some of that for us just for, just so some of our listeners can kind of get a timeline of, of these events? Yes. When I came out of my fellowship in 91, RK was the most common refractive surgery. And so, you know, when I started from day one, 1991, July, I had the choice with my patients of RK, as far as obviously approved, and PRK in clinical trial. And so every single patient, I was sitting there thinking, should I do mini RK or is it better for them to do a PRK procedure? And so that was 91. And then in 94, when we started the LASIK trials, we thought LASIK was going to be just for high corrections. And I'll never forget thinking and talking with the optometrist that worked with me then, who actually did his residency with Ralph (laughs) way back when. And that was back when him and Steve were together. And he and I said, LASIK is going to be something for 10 diopters and over of correction. PRK just works so beautiful up to 10. And then the next month we said, LASIK's gonna be for nine diopters over. The next month, LASIK's gonna be for eight, <laughs> and then seven, and then seven. I mean, the, it, we, we just became so fascinated with the procedure that we just didn't understand at all the power of it. And so that was 94. And then the fake wells were 95. And starting to get back into the lens uh, was 98. And then starting these pseudophagic clinical trials was the early part of this century. And then the advanced implants really becoming a larger part of my non-research practice happened when Andy Corley led the charge going to CMS to actually get presbyopia and toric implant surgery, a non-covered service. And I think a lot of people don't realize how refractive surgery was here and cataract surgery was here. And there was this huge divide because we really couldn't turn cataract surgery into a refractive practice because we didn't have a way of, of billing for it. And so when he went to CMS and got it to be presbyopia correcting and toric implants, a non-covered service, it unleashed the companies to now have a wonderful reason to put a ton into research. And so the product development that happened since that 2005 ruling was unbelievable. And so in a practice like mine, where lens-based refractive surgery, pseudophagic was less than 2% of our procedures. Now it's half of our refractive surgeries. That was super important. And I think the other inflection point happened when we went from bifocals and mixing and matching using a distance intermediate lens to combine with a distance near lens to try to get all three lenses and dealing with eye dominancy and sometimes a patient not being able to use the near portion implant because they just couldn't ignore the near blur of their dominant eye and the neural adaptation that happened with mixing and matching. I'll never forget that first trifocal study, which was the panoptics study, the neural adaptation, the patient joy that was happening even in the first month that it just blew me away that going for equal distance, intermediate, and near, and what that was going to do to our journey. And then finishing that study and at the end of it, really experiencing one of my first patient reported outcome that, you know, was a game changer, asking the patients, would you do this again? And the, you know, monofocal control patients, 89% of them saying yes, 11% saying no. This loss of near and this computer and cell phone world going to the reading range of an 80-year-old, I, I don't like it. Did they adjust? Yes, they did adjust. But when you looked at the trifocal patients, 99.2% of them said they'd do it that way again. When you switched to trifocals, did you feel like that maybe that week one or that in-between visit changed a little bit? Was there a different tenor to it? Yeah, for sure. My, my conversations 
really became, you know, more based on the eye than the technology. And what I mean by that is if they were a good candidate, they were getting a trifocal. If they had something that lessened their trifocal candidacy in one eye, I would consider a need off in the other eye, even a monofocal. But in general, two good eyes. I, I love doing similar technology now that we have such amazing tools. Absolutely. So in thinking about all that, you know, you talked about a little bit about RK, PRK, LASIK, we talked about fake IOLs, we talked about refractive next generation IOL technology. What about the current FACIC IOLs that we have on the market today, you know, like the ICL. So how, how did that kind of fit in? When did you start using those? Because that's obviously an important part of this, this whole journey too. Yeah. And I was an ICL Evo investigator too. And it's just been amazing to me how getting more comfortable with sizing, because I used to be pretty intimidated with sizing. And that's why I did more Verisize because I didn't have to worry about the, the sizing. I was even willing to use a larger implant. We did the Artiflex study in the United States, which was a foldable implant. And we you know, also did the cache study, which was uh, Alcon's foldable fake IOL. And both of those studies were stopped for various reasons, one for inflammation, one for endothelium. You know, I was intrigued with small incision, but it was the EVO study where I really realized that we had another major advance. Not that I was so intimidated with peripheral aerodectomy, but I don't love it. And the patients didn't love it. And sometimes that endpoint is not perfectly obvious. It's just not a benign procedure. And so the idea of going to Evo and not needing PIs was one, but also going to Evo and being able to have maybe not as, if there was less vault, it was okay. And so Evo, for a number of reasons, really helped me to grow in, in refractive surgery. And now I do enough of it that when I put in the second Evo, oftentimes on the same day, I call it the Evo twin. I love that. That's great. In thinking about that, do you think, because you know, a lot of us that more recently got involved in ICLs, we kind of thought about it the way you did early LASIK and that, oh, that's only for high, high myops. But now we're starting to come down on it, right? So we're starting to come down uh, in terms of who we're starting to consider for an ICL, do you think that's something that's going to continue to change as more people get? That's a prospective. Now we're talking prospective. We've been talking about the past, but now we're talking prospectively. Do you think that that's something that surgeons will continue to get more comfortable with in using lower powered ICLs, you know, like four and five diopter ICLs? Yeah. So, first of all, I love it when two refractive surgeons get together and talk. They, they can't help but dive into refractive surgery, which I just love. The answer is yes. And in the world of refractive surgery, there's a couple big things that I think about. Am I doing pure refractive surgery or am I also doing, in addition to refractive surgery, image quality surgery? You could just say image quality should be a part of every one of our refractive surgery decisions. But like I tell a patient, if I can help you with a manifest refraction, see sharp, I probably can help you have a refractive surgery that's going to help you see sharp. But if I can't make you see sharp with a manifest refraction, we need to work on your image quality. And so if image quality is becoming a part of it, now PRK, LASIK, SMILE, and fake Wells are not my first choice. Making sure their tear film's happy, since that tear lens is two to four, four times more powerful than that intraocular lens. I always want to make sure that's happy. And, and of course, the corneal epithelium and, and the anterior stroma. And if my manifest refraction is down and I'm suspicious of those, I'm doing a gas perm over refraction. If it's sharp, I'm going after that surface. If it's not sharp, I'm starting to look at that lens as long as everything else is, is happy. And so that's the first decision I'm always trying to make. Is their image quality good enough that I can think about corneal refractive or fake IOL? Or is their image quality not great and I'm going to be thinking about lens replacement? And when it comes to the next big thing I think about is how am I going to leave them on the long run? You know, because sometimes when someone's not a good candidate and they're a, a four to six diopter myope and they're not a good candidate for LASIK and we do PRK. And then 20 years later, we realize that 
that epithelium is 80 microns thick, and they can't have a trifocal because their cornea is scattering too much. We aren't necessarily explaining all the time to patients how we're going to leave them on the long run, and that they are myopes who get cataracts at a younger age. And if you want to think about having your anterior corneal surface be pristine, or you don't want to change your corneal shape too much with PRK LASIK or SMILE, and you want to have the choice of every single implant someday when that happens, you probably want to be thinking about a phacic implant. And that's where the ICL is just so amazing because it kind of takes care of a couple of those issues. If they have great image quality, I'm not going to be changing their corneal shape too much. The ICL will maintain their image quality and it maintains that cornea for long-term advanced implant decisions. So for a number of reasons, phacic IOLs have been a, a big part of my journey and, a, and, a, and still a growing part of my journey. But it's interesting how we think about it a little differently now. So before multifocals, trifocals, you know, all these advanced technology lenses, we may not have put as much weight on changing the cornea because, hey, everyone's just going to get a monofocal IOL. So now that we have these advanced technology lenses, we want to still be able to tee our patients up. And that's been a big change. I think if you look at the evolution of refractive surgery over time is we're not just thinking, what can we do for you for the next 10, 15, 20 years? It's what can we do for you 40 years from now? Right. Exactly. So Vance, tell me about your winery. I've actually been there. It's an incredible, incredible winery that you guys have set up. So how did you get into wine and how would you... Would you say that there's some overlap between the winery business and the business of ophthalmology or just the practice of ophthalmology? I think there's tremendous overlap. Probably one of the biggest overlaps have been without ophthalmology support. I don't know if I would have a business. Uh, it's been amazing how the ophthalmologists from all around the world have supported our wine business and enjoyed it. This week is the Kiowa Eye Meeting, and I got it text from Leo Otura, where Carrie Solomon was handing one of the speaker winners uh, a Jessup Sellers wine. The ophthalmology support has been amazing, but it kind of started with my best friend from medical school who, you know, in the mid-90s found that his wife was related to a winemaker in the Napa Valley. One thing led to another. They had to declare bankruptcy. And we ended up with this wine business in an interesting sequence of events because we didn't want to be in the wine business, but they needed some help. And, and it started an amazing journey. And we grew in our partners. Roy Eisminger and his wife joined us as partners. Our vineyard came up for sale and, and that was a big investment. And And that's when Jim Mazo became our partner and Jim being an amazing business leader. And some of the other capital needs, eventually, Carrie Solomon and Eric Donenfeld joined our group. We have had some amazing support from ophthalmology, not only as in the ownership, but in the people uh, joining it. And one of the keys to our growth has been the same thing that has been one of the keys to our growth in, in the ophthalmology business. And, and that is, it takes a great team experience to create a great wine or eye experience. And I've always had this philosophy, and I shouldn't say always because I feel like I learned it the hard way. In the 90s, when I was a doctor who loved taking care of people and loved doing refractive surgery, loved having a team, I felt like I had more patient and staff complaints than a nice guy should have. And so I decided to dive into the people part and in the business of, of what we do and started working with some of the great consultants uh, around the world that are really care about the customer experience. And how could we take that customer experience that was working in other industries and take our industry where we do one of the most intimate things we can do for someone, go inside their eye. How do we take that experience and make it commensurate with what we are doing for that person. So I started studying how to build a team culture to create a great patient experience and even developed a philosophy that in a lot of ways, the patient comes second. That in this 
world of medicine where that would almost be blasphemous to say the patient comes second. You know, we all took an oath, the Hippocratic oath, we're going to do the right thing for the patient. But that so many doctors almost hide behind the patient comes first as a license to treat the staff less than. And that really the key to the success of any great business in this world was a great team. And if culturally the team felt loved and cared for, they would help the patient feel loved and cared for. I even say that. One of the things I say to my team, the team that feels loved and cared for will create an environment where the patient feels loved and cared for. And so these patients who come in and they say, I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I like how they treat each other. I like how they treat me. I trust them to do my eye surgery and I'm going to tell my friends. So taking that philosophy and taking those slides and teaching those retreats to the wine business, crossing off eyes and putting wine was something that was a game changer, I feel, in our wine business. This idea of how to treat a team and, and how to create a customer experience. And so we call it the Napa Valley Wine with South Dakota Roots. And we've grown our wine club from zero when we took it over to over 7,000 people that are part of our wine family. And so that's how the eye business and the wine business continue to teach each other about the people part. I love that. That's great. And, and the other thing you do, Vance, it's so I know you say that the patient is second, but realistically, or maybe not realistically, but it feels like what's actually happening is the patient is still coming first. You're just going about it. And you're enabling your team and everyone around them to put the patient first by enabling them is what the way I interpret that. Maybe I'm interpreting that wrong. You are so right. And it's so interesting that you say that because a lot of people I talk to don't connect that final dot that the patient coming second culturally philosophy is the best thing for a patient first mentality. So bravo for you. <laughs> so in that same light, I know that you, you have your staff do something or you enable your staff to do something. If a patient's having a bad day, if a patient's had a recent death in the family or something, you enable your staff to do something that I, that I think is just so cool. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and, and how you came up with that idea? Because I think that that's something that in this grand history of eye care, we can talk about the science, we can talk about everything else, but I feel like one of your key contributions to this field is that the patient journey and how to treat patients and how to build a team. So do you, do you want to talk a little bit about what you enable your staff to do? Yeah. I have to thank someone first though, Matt Jensen, who worked with me for 20 years and and also had a company called Matt Jensen Marketing that has developed a lot of our messaging and, and has helped me so much with the in us with the patient experience. Matt's now doing that full-time, Matt Jensen Marketing. So if you need help with your practice, he's, he's been amazing for us. But it was Matt's idea that the team will do it, this very responsibly, and that is give them the ability to spend money when they want without permission. So if there's a teammate that does something that touches them or they maybe have a, a need that only they know about or a patient comes in and I, I'll never forget the day that Cami recognized the patient was down and after checking her vision said, is, is everything okay? And the, the nice lady said that, and she starts to tear that her husband had died before it was the anniversary of his death. And they, they talked through that. When that patient left, Cami called the local flower shop and was able to spend what she wanted to spend. That was a $75 bouquet. And then that lady calls our phone person and says she had never had a business do something so profound for her and how it helped her get through this day. And our phone person who answered writes an email to our whole organization, which we have seven centers, I mean, in the upper Midwest. I mean, this is a lot of people. And this person answering the phone was able to say how much it touched her life and how honored she is to be a part of an organization that cares this much. So whether it's a team member or a patient, or it's someone from industry that comes in and does something special, our team members can spend money on them helping them understand how deeply they touch them. And it has been really positive in our team 
and patient experience journey. I love that. I mean, I, that's so incredibly touching and, and it's so important. You know, at the end of the day, the patient, that's what we're here for. And, and we're all human. And so to look out for one another, whether it's our team members or the patients, I mean, Vance, I think that's awesome. I applaud you and, and Matt Jensen for, <laughs> for coming up with that and, and enabling that to happen and your staff to do that. That's awesome. A few final things here. If you had to think back, we talked about a lot. And I think I know, I think I know your answer here, but if you had to pick one technology that you felt was the biggest game changer of your career, what would it be? So I got to say two things. <laughs> That's fine. But I'm first going to say people. <laughs> and I know that sounds funny. To afford the technology, you need to have a healthy practice. And my practice joy and practice growth, I really have to look to my partners. I have been really blessed. And to tell you the truth, I feel that one of the things that I'm fascinated with is the greatness, other people's greatness. And I feel like there's greatness in all of us. And if we create an environment that is loving and caring, people will have a, a trust and, and allow that inner greatness to come out and play. But to get the partners that I've had the honor of being with has been the biggest game changer of my career. And I'm honored to be one of them. I will go back to as far as refractive surgery, my passion, that eczema laser was amazing. I do think that I have to tip my hat to corneal topography too, because when I first started my fellowship, it was photokeratoscopes. That's what, that's what you had to diagnose keratoconus. And another thing that happened amazing in that first week of my fellowship, here these two big boxes show up. One was an ISIS and one was a Tomei corneal topography, something that took that photokeratoscopic image and digitized it and allowed us to start looking at the cornea in extreme detail. So being able to have topography for patient selection and being able to have an eczema laser in that journey, it led to everything else that we've talked about. That's kind of where, where I thought you were going to go is the, is the eczema laser. And then thinking along your journey, you know, clearly you've, you've learned from a lot of different people. Uh, was there any one mentor or a few mentors that you'd like to mention? Someone who really stood out or helped guide you or held your hand and really opened your eyes to what you wanted to do? Well, you know, once you start naming names, it, <laughs> it gets challenging because you have, there's so many people. I mean, this world of ophthalmology, it's just been stunning, the, the support on a national and international basis. But I will tell you that really the, the first, you know, kind of two keys to that for me was Dan Dury, you know, just really opening my eyes to refractive surgery, but also really opening my eyes to patient education, to watch him communicate on how to educate a patient and to watch his passion for it to this day was absolutely amazing. But when I started my practice, I got a call from Dick Lindstrom and Dan Dury told him, I was now in Sioux Falls, Dick's in Minneapolis, not that far away, that we should get to know each other. And Dick invites me to Minneapolis and it started a lifelong friendship. I call them my big brothers. And it opened the door to a lot of other doctor, businessmen and women and industry relationships. Once I start naming all those relationships, it could get to be too long of a show. <laughs> those two guys showing early trust in me and telling other physicians in our world, other whether it's venture capital or other people and then industry for other studies and for other education, whatever that, that you can trust Vance, that was a big deal. In thinking about your research and all the research you've done over the years, is there any one particular project or one particular contribution that you're most proud of? As far as the most proud of, I think I would have a hard time naming one because what what has happened, and it's one of the reasons I thank you for allowing me to talk about the evolution, is it allowed me to develop a, a comprehensive view about refractive surgery. That refractive surgery isn't just LASIK. It's not just lens replacement or fake IOL. 
that refractive surgery is sometimes doing nothing, <laughs> if you will. And so this comprehensive approach to cornea versus up, eyewall versus lens-based surgery and developing a data-driven philosophy that being involved in the FDA monitor trials of all three legs to the stool of refractive surgery, cornea, fake eyewall, and lens, I think that's what I'm probably the most proud of uh, research-wise. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think when I think of all the research you've done and, and all your contributions, I mean, it's, it's truly amazing. You said how many different studies have you been involved in? It's like 105, 105, 105 places. I've been a device guy. <laughs> so, so think about that, Vance. So think of the thousands of tens of thousands of, I'm sure it's even pushing 100,000 patients that you've actually laid hands on to improve their sight, restore their vision. But think about the potentially millions of patients you've touched through research. Yeah, that's awesome. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, Morgan. But I will tell you, it's been one of the keys to being at the stage of my career I am and having this passion for patient education and this joy of being in the operating room. Research has been a big reason for keeping it fresh, constantly having a peek into the future, having the industry relationships to help guide and influence you know, some of the things that they are focusing on. The research part of it has been foundational in our journey, besides the fact that it's been something that's brought a lot of practice joy and pride to our team. Now that we've, we've talked a little bit, of, we've talked a lot about the past and thinking about the future, what is something that you are the most excited about that you think is on the near horizon? And, you know, I know you're in a lot of studies, only talk about things that obviously you can <laughs> But is there anything is there anything that's on the horizon that you are the most excited about or that that we as as ophthalmologists should be the most excited about in the near future? I can think of a number of things that's happened over my career. And I'm you're you're gonna probably want some more sizzle in my answer. <laughs> but I, I think that some of the things that are just that I understand now way differently than I did a long time ago is the hazards of eye rubbing or pushing your eye into a pillow. I ask every single patient almost before I introduce who I am, if they do either one of them, the importance of myopia management. Here we have this access to these, a lot of parents that have children. And if you're not educating them on myopia management, it's a missed opportunity for our society. I think that the understanding of tear film blur has been something that has been really important. And so the diagnostics and the treatment ability of what I like to call the tear lens, it has been super important. We've been respectful of the you know therapeutic side of the tear film, but not the optical. This optical understanding uh, of the tear film, and then I like to talk about epithelial blur, just understanding that epithelium, even though it's not frank anterior basement membrane dystrophy, that there's a spectrum that you can't see at the slit lamp, but you can diagnose with epithelial mapping and gas perm over refractions. And so just understanding how to optimize image quality. And then that our lens wasn't meant to be monofocal, that when you start looking at high order aberration maps of people before they have a cataract, our optical system is multifocal. It's not something to be intimidated by. And so the idea of understanding multifocality, that it's a natural part of the human eye, and then learning how to optimize it from front to back, and then learning about neural adaptation, that's been a big you know, part of my journey. And so I think you can tell there's a number of things that that I know now that I wasn't as, as knowledgeable about. And so to the modern day refractive surgeon, to be thinking about all these things, because refractive surgery is one of the, the, the most powerful ways we can influence someone's life in a positive way if we're thinking about all these and not being unidimensional in our thinking. That was awesome, Vance. Thank you so much. It sounds like I may need to do some topic-based episodes as well. So maybe I'll get into IOLs, but I think myopia management would be you know, a great episode. So I think I'll have to jot that one down. And then you did mention Andy Corley. I am hoping that Andy will join us on an episode at some point in the future as well, just because he was so pivotal in, in what we all do today, as well as the technology. I mean, like you said, if he doesn't get that through with CMS, industry is not going to fund the advancements that we see today. Amazing. 
stunning yeah. how it bridges the gap between refractive and cataract surgery. Any parting recommendations for all of our young ophthalmologists, optometrists, someone in the industry, just anyone who may be listening to the show that's associated with eye care in any way? Any parting words? I think to respect the people part of your journey, whether it comes to your partners or the team that you work with, to realize the same things that make a great family, loving and caring for each other, make a great work family. And that this philosophy that you've read about, that it's not good to have friendships at work or whatever, I consider it just the opposite. I love the phrase work brothers and work sisters and caring about what they care about in their life. And so it makes workplace joy so much better and it makes them want to do it with you for a long time. And then also to keep up with the technology advancements, maybe develop some mentors. Whether you do a fellowship or not, you'll find that ophthalmology is so collegial and so to develop some mentors. After that, to just do what I think everybody should do in life and that is finish. I think sometimes clinic gets busy or we have other things going on in life and, and people just don't close the loop like they would for themselves or a loved one. And I think when a patient leaves the office, they need to understand why they aren't finished yet and they need to have that inner peace and you need to stick with them till they are, but to be a finisher. I like it. That's awesome. And then Vance, one thing we didn't talk about, and perhaps, perhaps we can table this for, an, for another episode. I'd love to have you back for something that's topic-based, but you know, I think talking about fellowships and private practice fellowships and the history of private practice fellowships or the history of some education, I, I, think, that'd be, I think that'd be very interesting. If everybody could, they should do a fellowship. Yeah. Being the buck stops here in something, and my partner, John Birdall, says being bulletproof for an area of specialty that you want to be is really exciting. And so talking about education would be an honor to talk with you more about. Well, Vance, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Sincerely, thank you for sharing all of your insights and experiences with all of us. Your contributions to the field of eye care are truly remarkable, and we're all grateful for the opportunity to learn from your wisdom and expertise. Thank you, Morgan. It's been an absolute delight. I'm honored to be here with you. I want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for helping support this editorially independent content, in particular, Alcon, who is a founding level sponsor of the season one of the History of Eye Care. To the listeners out there, Thank you for joining us on this inaugural episode of the History of Eye Care. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did, and that you were able to take away some valuable insights into the modern history of eye care. Remember that by understanding the past, we can better shape the future. Until next time, I'm Dr. Morgan Micheletti. See you around. And that concludes another episode of the History of Eye Care with your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred platform. Don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episode information and to join in on the conversation.